Hi, everyone. You're listening to Dear Anxiety. I'm Rini Jane, and I'm just popping in to let you know that Ed and I will be back next week with a brand new episode. But don't touch that dial. Is it a dial anymore? Don't touch whatever you're listening to, because right now we are super excited to share with you an interview I did with Dr. Justin Coulson. He's a parenting expert who has loads of information and tools to help you raise more resilient kids. Dr. Coulson's interview was just one of the exciting conversations we recorded for the Happy Child Summit. So if you like what you hear, you'll find his and 20 more expert interviews at happychildsummit.com. And just for our loyal listeners, use the code DEARANXIETY20, that's DEARANXIETY20, and you'll receive 20% off the full summit package. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. This is Rini Jane, Chief Storyteller at GoZen, bringing you the Happy Child Summit. Oh my goodness, I am so thrilled for our next guest. We have Dr. Justin Coulson with us, and I cannot help but tell you how cool he is. I know oh, that very I just... Good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> help but throw that joke in there. I know that you've heard it a million times, but he really is cool. You'll see. So Dr. Justin Coulson is one of Australia's most respected and popular parenting authors and speakers. He's sought after for his expertise in family life, relationships, and well-being and resilience, and he's the founder of Happy Families. Dr. Coulson has written five books, and he's a three-time best-selling author. He and his wife, Kylie, are the parents of six daughters. Isn't that amazing? I have to pause on that. That's so amazing. And I want to tell you about some of their special talents because this is important, right? So all of his daughters have successfully mastered sleeping all night in their own beds, using the bathroom unassisted, hey, hey, (laughs) eating most of the food on their plates most of the time, and always speaking kindly to one another no matter what the circumstance. Is this all true? We want to know. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that last one. Look, we always said to our girls, you can date when you've mastered sleeping in your own bed and going to the toilet on your own and getting dressed um, or when you're 16, whichever one, you know, it's 16 and being able to do all that sort of stuff. And they've, they've managed the kind of words thing with six kids. It gets tricky now and then, but yeah, most of, most of the, that is true most of the time. That is amazing. So, I mean, I think I, we could spell the, spend the entire interviews talking about how you have six daughters, and I know that that's going to come into this, but I would love to start sure. with your story because it's fascinating. So you're a parenting expert, but this has not been a straight linear path for you, right? There's been some curves, and one of those curves, I believe you are a radio personality. So right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So how it's did you come of- to be a parenting expert? First of all, I I find it a little bit funny to call myself a parenting expert. I mean, parenting is complicated and uh, challenging and and people are complex, especially little people, and and particularly when they're working with big people who don't understand them properly. Uh, The idea of expertise is kind of strange in psychology, I think. Um, But I do call myself a a parenting scientist or a a, well, more of a lapsed scientist these days, a lapsed academic. Uh, when I was in high school, I was that you know that teenage boy that you hope your child won't be. That was me. Um, <laughs> I just I had bad attitude. I hated school. I was rude and obnoxious and arrogant and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when I finished high school, I just wanted to be a radio DJ. Um, 
and over the subsequent years following high school, I worked very, very hard at my craft and ended up being at one of the biggest radio stations in Australia. It was called Brisbane's B105. See how I did that? Just I, yeah. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the sort of place where we played all of today's best music while you work. Uh, and, and so my job was to be on the radio and I would... Um, interview and sit down or go backstage with whichever global celebrities happen to be going through town. Um, can I name drop? Would you like me to name drop a little bit? Yeah, please do. Yeah. On, so yeah. I, I sat down with people like John Mayer and uh, Gwen Stefani and um, uh, Anastasia and Ronan Keating and whoever else, you know, just uh, global celebrities, whoever was coming through town, I got to hang out with them. Um, and I was pretty that good at my job. That is not a bad job, by the way. Yeah, well, well it's... When you're in your early 20s, it's wonderful. But by the time I got into my late 20s, I was married, I had a couple of kids. And really, I just kind of felt like living this shallow, superficial, skin deep life was not working for me anymore. I felt as though the industry that I was a part of was not really aligning well with who I was becoming as a human. I mean, I was kind of growing up, I guess. So in 2002, I'm in my late 20s, I've got a wife and two kids. Um, I, I actually write about this in one of my books. It's a very hard story to tell. I was very uncomfortable writing about it because it, this is the, the parenting expert, to go back to that, you, that, that word, um, confessing that he's really gotten it wrong in some significant ways. Uh, I, I had this one incident with my eldest daughter. Uh, she was a typical three-nager. You, you know, they, they turn three, they become a three-nager. Um, hard work just favorite word was no ironically my favorite word was probably no as well um and, and kylie my wife went out one afternoon i was looking after the the three-year-old chanel and our baby daughter who was literally quite newborn i was exhausted i'd been out late partying as you know the radio dj does the night before i'd been up early to get to work i'd come home saturday afternoon it's one of those, you know, those really hot afternoons where you, you know, if you lay on the bed for more than about 30 seconds, you're going to drift off into a perfect afternoon nana nap. You're going to have a nice little snooze. And Kylie said to me, look, I've got to go out. You, um, you're going to have your nap later. Uh, but first, can you please put our three-year-old to sleep? She'll be ready for her bedtime in about half an hour. And I said, sure, no problem. It'll be fine. Famous last words. Um, when I tried to put her down, it, got really ugly really fast. She said, no. I said, I'm your father. You'll do as I say. And she said, no, I won't because I'm not tired. And it just, it escalated very, very quickly. I, I, I find it quite shameful to describe what went on. Uh, and I won't go into detail, but, and I probably should also hasten to add that I think that I did what a lot of typical dads or mums will do when they're tired. They've got a um, stubborn oppositional three-year-old who just needs to do as they're told but I got angrier and angrier and angrier that just kept on going up and up and up and pretty soon I was yelling at her and threatening her and calling her names and I hit her and I walked out and slammed the door and held it closed and all of those kinds of things that are just so inconsistent with everything we know that we're supposed to do as parents but in our moments of weakness, we allow them to happen. Uh, and she laid down on the door, on the floor behind the door and used her heels as hammers, just going, boom, 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 boom. 
which made me force the door open and pick her up and threaten her some more and tell her she had to go to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, Rini, but if somebody's holding you two meters off the ground and you're only uh, you know, two and a half, three foot tall and you're being held all the way up there like that, you probably don't look at that person and say, well, you know, now that you put it like that, I am feeling a little sleepy. Thanks for the reminder. And she didn't do that at all. She screamed more. Uh, and I stormed out of the room because I knew that I was out of control. And I just held that door handle as she screamed and wailed. And, uh, and I just remember thinking, <laughs> it's not my fault. If she would just do as she was told, this wouldn't be happening. Uh, and a short while later, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the, the angrier you are, the more right you are. Yes. And if you start to calm down, you discover that you weren't nearly as right as you thought. Our intelligence goes down as our emotions go up. And I was, I mean, this was a toddler behaving like a toddler, but I'm an adult. I don't think I was behaving like one at all. And, and it, I mean, it causes me pain to tell this story. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible story. And I'm, 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 but I guess I share it because I want every parent who's having a hard time to know we all want our kids to be happy, but we all make mistakes. Even the guy who's the expert. I mean, at the time I was, I was young. I didn't have any education behind me at all. I was just this radio announcer. Um, but, but after this horrible incident, I mean, she finally actually did fall asleep, exhausted, sobbing into the carpet on the, on the floor behind the door. And I did you go through what happened to you? Did it go from anger? Do you go to guilt then? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of what happened. I mean, I started to calm down and realize I, I, I stepped into the backyard because I wasn't going to go to sleep now. No matter how tired I was, I was far too worked up. And, and the anger, as it subsided, I started, to feel, I started to feel guilt and pain. I knew that what I'd done was just... Just awful. And it occurred to me, I actually had this specific thought, Justin, you are a bad father. Now, compared to some dads who are out there, I'm probably not bad at all, or I wasn't at the time, but but I was bad compared to what I value as a dad. I was not being the dad I wanted to be. Um, while I was having this, this moment of realisation, across my back fence and a few doors down in a neighbouring street, I heard a dad and a two-year-old go through a similar conflict. And... Uh, Rini, it just, it was like what I'd just been through was being replayed in full stereo for me to hear the whole lot. And it made me feel sick to my stomach. I thought, did I just do that? Is that what that just sounded like? And I had to recognize that that's probably exactly how it sounded. When Kylie came home, I shared with her what had gone on. I told her how bad I was feeling. It was a real moment of truth for both of us, I think. And Kylie, who's wonderfully soft-spoken and kind and generous and who we, we're about to celebrate our 21st wedding anniversary. I mean, we, we have just the most wonderful marriage. Uh, she looked at me and, and said quite directly, Justin, I'm really glad that you shared that with me. I think it's really important for us both to acknowledge that you're not the father that either of us want you to be which was a really hard thing to hear from my wife. I was like, wow. wow. At which point she also, not so subtly added, come to think of it, you're not quite the husband I was hoping for either. I was like, Whoa, what do I do now? And she wasn't making any threats or anything. She was really highlighting clearly that enough was enough and, and things needed to change. And so I left my decade long radio career over the next two or three months, I, I, I resigned from my position and I decided to go back to school. I wanted to study psychology so that I could learn how to dad. 
how to be a better father and husband. Uh, and, and anyone who's ever done a psychology degree discovers very quickly that you don't do very much parenting in that first four years of psychological science. Um, and so when I finished my four years, I graduated with first class honours, which was wonderfully exciting. And I went ahead and um, did a PhD in positive psychology and parenting. And so, you know, eight and a half years of full-time study and we went from two kids to three kids to four kids to five kids while I was studying. Then I worked as an academic for a couple of years and uh, stepped into full-time writing and speaking about parenting shortly after that. Uh, and we had our sixth baby. Uh, and we have all girls. They're six girls, which we just think are um, they're, they're, they're the love of our lives. We're, we're absolutely crazy about them. And none of it would have happened had I not had that awful experience. A lot of people say, well, that's just terrible and you should be ashamed of yourself. And, and, and I am. But I'm also grateful for what it led to because for me it was that epiphany, that wake-up moment that you have got to do something. And it led, to, it led to me completely changing my career. And now I write books to help other parents who are going through that. I think when I read that in, you know, so you've written several books and the book was I, I was reading was 21 Days to a Happier Family. And I actually did not expect the book to start off like that. And I was so drawn in from your candor. And I have a similar experience to you in being called a parenting expert. And I believe the perception from the outside being, oh, there must be utopia in your home. And I'm very quick to tell people I am a constant work in progress. I am always practicing, you know, it takes me practices. I have plenty of flaws, you know, um, but I was just so struck by your honesty and that your ability to retell the story now, uh, because I feel like the parents and the educators who are also parents, you know, the professionals listening, so many of us have been there. So while I know I can hear in your voice that, you know, what you're talking about with your three-year-old at the time, there was some element of shame. I think what you're doing now in sharing your story helps so many of us because I know we're going to go through, you know, how did you change? What did you do? What are the things that we can do? But just to see that you are in such a different place and that that change was possible, that in and of itself is amazing. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And I, yeah, I love that book. I love your books. They're amazing. So tell us, you know, so this was clearly an inflection point for you. You went back to school, you studied, um, and you had six kids. <laughs> Like how that's an aside. And then I had, Who does kids, that? You know, along the way I had, you know, like, well, you had four more, right? Cause you had already had two. So now you have six girls, but it seems like, uh, you know, as you're describing that story, there's obviously a backstory to what led you to the point where when your three-year-old was screaming, you were reacting in that way, right? What led to your reactions? And then in, in your studying, how did you find a process of change? I know this big, big questions, but let's put it out there. Yeah, that is a big question, uh, Rini. I, I think that I was completely unintentional and unprepared for parenthood. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who say, let's have kids. And so we do. Uh, we don't have to do any training. We don't have to read any books. We don't have to do anything. We simply have to have sperm and egg and children can be produced. Uh, and so I was fairly young. I was 24 when our first baby was born. Uh, she's about to turn 20. <laughs> um, and um, 
I kind of just had this mindset that children will do as they are told. Now, I watched other parents whose children didn't do as they were told, but my belief was, well, that's because those parents just don't know how to get their kids to do as they're told. It's not that big a deal, really. Um, once I had a child, I had this expectation and my experience was not meeting the expectation. But rather than be intelligent about it, rather than think of um, useful strategies and ways forward, I did what most parents do. I got angry and I used my power to force the situation. When I'm running parenting presentations, and I just love to use this particular analogy, I ask parents, because everyone's sitting there with pen and paper, they're taking notes, which is wonderful. I love the, I love the enthusiasm and the, and the desire to, to take these nuggets of wisdom. Uh, and, and I ask parents, would you just draw me a picture of a house? Could you just draw a house for me? And everyone says, yeah, sure, sure. So they draw a picture of a house. And as you can imagine, the house uh, is pretty basic. It's, it's a square with a triangle on top. It usually has one of those nice little curvy paths. It's got a chimney. Some people even draw the sun and the tree. Um, I mean, it's really basic. There's a rectangular door with a little doorknob and there's a, a little box with an X through it so that, it, you know, across through it so it's a window. Uh, every now and again, somebody will do the 3D version, but, but it's really, really basic. And then I, I asked the question, why are you still drawing the same house that you drew when you were six years old? And everybody laughs with a bit of embarrassment because they realize that they actually are drawing the same house that they drew 30 or more years ago. And they give answers like this. They say, well, because it's really quick. We didn't have much time. And I'll say, well, I didn't give you a time limit. I just asked you to draw me a house. They'll say, well, because it's really simple. It's really easy. It doesn't take any thought. It's kind of just a symbolic representation. Every now and again, somebody will say, well, that's what a house looks like. And I look at them and I say, really? Is that what your house looks like? I hope not. Uh, but, but, you know, we kind of come up with all of these answers. Somebody will usually say, I just don't have the skills to draw a better house. Some people will say, I couldn't be bothered drawing a better house. Why would I? You just asked me to draw a house. That's good enough. Um, some people will say, well, it's what other people expect of me when I draw a house. Then I turn the conversation completely to something that seems unrelated. I say, let's talk about the standard way that most parents in the Western world discipline their children. How do they discipline their kids? And the standard, well, you, you tell me, Rita, you work with parents as well. What are the most common discipline strategies that you're familiar with hearing? I hear timeouts still. I hear, um, you know, taking away privileges. Um, I hear, yeah, those are, those are kind of the two big ones. Um, I don't often hear, you know, spanking once in a while, I will hear that. Um, and sometimes I just hear, you know, I just get very stern with them and tell them what to do. Right, so, right. Yeah. So and, yes. and they're the basic ones that I hear all the time, yeah. uh, yelling, threatening, yeah. um, withdrawal of privileges. You know, if you don't yes. do what I say, I'll take your iPad off you for a week. Um, timeout, which I, I struggle with so much because, you know, timeout, at the time that our child is struggling the most, therefore, at the time that they need a parent's gentle guidance and help the most, that's the time where we actually say, you go to your room and you figure this out yourself. You're on your own, kiddo. We're, we're kind of, the United Nations a few years ago said that solitary confinement was a violation of human rights, and yet we do it in our homes all the time. Um, you've mentioned that smacking or spanking, as, as you say in the US, is not that uh, common in terms of the conversations you I have. I don't hear it in the conversations that I'm having, but I know that it's still prevalent. 
Yeah, and statistically speaking, so so I uh, I wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, recently, uh, where I I talked about spanking and how prevalent it is to the point where we have political leaders standing up and arguing for parents' rights to be able to hit their children. Uh, now we can go into all of that later if we need to in terms of what we're doing for discipline. But what's really interesting here is if you look at the definition of discipline in today's dictionary, it says to punish. Then you look up punish and it says to hurt someone because you don't like what they've done, you know, to hurt someone in consequence of actions that you deem inappropriate. Punishment is about hurting. And we're using the term discipline and punishment. We're using those terms interchangeably. We're saying that discipline and punishment are the same thing. But if you look up an older dictionary, if you look at the etymology of the word discipline, it actually means to teach, to guide, and to instruct. In other words, when we discipline our children, we help them. But when we punish our children, we hurt them. We discipline our children the way we draw houses. Mm. We do it in the way that's quick, that's easy, that's very um, representative of discipline, but it's actually not. We do it that way because people just expect us to do it that way. We do it that way because we're short on time. We do it because we don't have the skills. We do it because we don't have the perspective or the compassion or the empathy or the ability to stand in our children's shoes for a moment and see that they're struggling. So if I go all the way back to your question, I was that typical parent who figured that my job was to make my kids obedient. Over time, what I've learned is that obedient children are not what we need as parents. It's very convenient when they're obedient. It's wonderful when they're obedient. But I want my children to think for themselves. I want my children to be responsible. I want my children to be thoughtful and empathic. And if we go back to the definition of discipline, just briefly, if discipline means teach, guide, and instruct, what are we teaching, guiding, and instructing our children in when we use those standard discipline strategies? What the research evidence tells us is that when we use those strategies, our children learn that might is right. You know, the big person wins. The, the person who's most powerful can have what they want. And there's good evidence that shows that, I mean, those strategies I think are akin to bullying, quite frankly. Um, and and I'm, this is not a shameful, I'm not trying to point fingers at people. This is not about bringing shame and judgment into the conversation because we've all done it. And in moments of desperation and frustration, this parenting expert still gets it wrong from time to time. I'm, I'm completely upfront about that. I don't make any claims to parenting perfection. What I'm really interested in doing is saying, what are our kids learning? You know the most interesting thing that they're learning? I think they're actually learning to be more selfish. And let me explain what I mean. Let's use time out as an example. One of the stories that I love to tell is when I was about 15 years of age, Rini, I was in the kitchen with my sister, Karina, and Karina did something that upset me. And I said something to her like, uh, Karina, you're such an idiot. And in our home, the word idiot was banned. I mean, we just, we didn't say that. Even at the age of 15, I wasn't allowed to say idiot. That's terrible. And, and mum overheard and ran into the kitchen and said, Justin, we don't speak like that in this house. You say sorry to your sister right now. 
And I, um, I mean, I'm a teenage boy with a bad attitude. I looked at my sister and I said, fine, Karina, I'm sorry you're an idiot. And <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I mean, uh, it, it's so I'm funny. having flashbacks to my brother. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny now, but in the moment, mum said, Justin, you go to your room and you think about what you've done. Now, she's trying to discipline me, but what she's actually doing is she's punishing me. And, and let me tell you, Rini, I was so grateful because when I got to my room, having been sent there by my mum to think about what I've done, I sat there at my desk and I thought to myself, you know, mum's right. And it was wise of her to send me here because I have been an impediment to my family's happiness. I haven't been a good big brother and I'm not being a good son. And as a result of the opportunity that I've had to sit here in my bedroom and contemplate the way I'm behaving, I'm certain now that when I leave my room, I'm going to be a better human being. I'll be a better brother. I'll be a better, said no, said no child ever. You know, like when we send them to the naughty, naughty chair or the naughty corner, or we send them to their bedroom or the cupboard under the stairs or wherever we're sending our kids to for time out. They don't sit there and think about how they need to be a better human. They sit there and they plot their revenge. They feel like, so, so you know, this child has done the wrong thing. They've behaved in a challenging and inappropriate way. And we want them to think about what they've done. That is, we want them to think about who they've affected and in what ways they've been a negative uh, they've had a negative impact. And, and yet they go there and they just think about themselves. By punishing them, we turn them into a victim. Do you know what I mean? Like we use our power to send them away and they just think about how sorry they are for themselves and how, in fact, I remember thinking something along these lines, I hate my mum. She doesn't understand. And, and, and that's what kids think, right? My parents don't understand. They've just sent me away. This isn't fair. So I felt like I hated her. And the other thing that I thought really was this, when I get out of here, my sister is dead meat. That's what we used to say when I was a kid, you're dead meat. And I was just thinking, she's, she's toast. I'm going to be much sneaky. And you know, mum says, don't let me ever catch you doing that again. And, and I think to myself, you know what? You won't. I'll be really clever about it next time. I'll be much sneakier. And so when we use all of these punishments, we push that unwanted behavior underground. What we actually do is we create, I mean, this is the happy child summit but we're creating unhappiness. We feel lousy as parents because our discipline strategies are all about power and force and coercion. We're parenting like a six-year-old. We're not parenting like an adult, just like we drew a picture like a six-year-old. We're making ourselves feel lousy. Or if we don't feel lousy, it's because we've cut ourselves off from the, emotionals, uh, the, the emotional depth that we're, that we're burying, but we're also making our kids feel lousy. I think that we also become experts at showing up as our parents want us to show up or as the world wants us to show up so that we can, yeah, we can plot our revenge, right? But we are not going to get in trouble because we know what the things are that are going to end us up in our room or under the cupboard or in timeout or, you know, wherever, wherever we are. So we're just not, I became an expert at just feigning, you know, everything's fine. I was an emotional stoic. It's all fine. It's all good. But I was a storm within. Perfect. Yeah. When, when you're that young, if, if your parents won't listen to you when you're in distress and you're acting out, you don't believe that they'll listen to you when you're in distress because you're struggling with life because the anxiety or the friendship issues or uh, the, the peer pressure or the fact that you can't learn properly at school, that's all too big for you to talk to your parents because the trust is undermined 
they're not willing. I, I love, I don't know if you've heard of a, a very polarizing but wonderful author by the name of Alfie Cohn. Oh, He's, love. Yes. Well, <laughs> Alfie Cohn's got this wonderful phrase that he uses that I just love. He says, we're so busy doing things to our children. We need to start working with them. So I know that parents listening to this are thinking about the, all these examples of these kids that are perhaps, you know, what we're calling acting out, but they're, they're having difficulty navigating a particular situation, right? And they're going to say, and I'm sure you've heard this in your parenting workshops, okay, Dr. Coulson, so what's the alternative, you know? Okay, so we're not going to do time out, but what is the alternative? Then what? Yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's a really, a really challenging question because my answer is that we, we've got to stop drawing houses like six-year-olds. We've got to start drawing the house that your architect might design for you. But to, to draw that house takes time, it takes perspective, and it's a skill that has to be developed. So the first thing that I say when I get that question is, I'll tell you how, but please be prepared to fail a lot. Mm -hmm because parenting is hard and learning any new skill is hard. And this is a new skill that's complex. You'll also note that usually um, you're trying to do the discipline thing at a time when your emotions are high and their emotions are high. But you remember what I said before, high emotions, low intelligence. So, so the first thing that I would actually say is if we're going to, tr you, you can't teach and guide and instruct. No, there's no learning that takes place when emotions are high. Nothing goes in. So the best discipline doesn't happen in the moment. The best discipline happens later. In fact, there's two times that you should never discipline your children. The first is when there's an audience, because when people are watching, the kids are gonna, they'll, they'll react in any number of ways that aren't helpful. Uh, and the second time is when emotions are high, when you're emotional or when they're emotional. And some parents really believe that you've got to discipline right here in the moment, you know, quickly get in, discipline them now which means punish them, send them to the room, make them learn their lesson right now. They don't learn a lesson. They just learn to be selfish. They learn that their parents don't care about them and don't want to understand. They learn all of those things that we talked about before that are unhelpful. I think that it's much better to talk to the kids and, and say something along the lines of, you know what, we are going to have to have a conversation about this, but let's just wait until we're calm so that we can talk about it properly. And you can do this with two year olds. I'll share a story about how that works shortly. And you can do it with, well, 32 year olds, you can do it with your partner. It, it, it works with adults as well. In fact, I, I share this strategy, not in a parenting context, but in a corporate context when I'm doing work with corporate leaders, because it's the same with grownups it is, as it is with kids. You just change the way you do it a little bit. So I maybe think I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm so excited by your answers. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm so excited by the house. I love that, by the way, I might have to borrow that from you. I love that. Um, right. I'm, I'm very excited by it because, you know, I think it's kind of almost a trick question. So what's the alternative, right? Because really, I feel like when a parent is asking that question, the outcome that they're seeking is not the outcome of what you are saying is discipline, right? Is teaching, yes. is guidance. And I really think it's more about, well, what's the alternative? Because I'm seeking, my outcome is obedience. And I love, I love that you said, don't do it when there is an audience, Aside from, you know, the child reacting to the audience, there is 
an enormous amount of complexity and layers that get added when you have your parents around, for example, right, watching, or you have friends who are watching and you have these other little voices in your head. Come on, everyone's looking to see if you're able to handle it, right? You've got to put on a show. Yes, you have to, you as the parent have to put on a show. So I think that it's extremely important, yes, that it's not done in front of an audience and that really taking a step back before we're stepping in and trying to put out these little fires to know that the outcome is nothing about putting out the fires. It has nothing to do with putting out the fires, right? That is not the goal here. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me share a quick example and then I'm going to get a bit theoretical for a sec because the theory is actually important here. Um, I travel quite a bit for my work. I mean, I, I, I'm a full-time professional speaker and I'm you know, off doing TV shows and um, running seminars and things. And so my wife, Kylie, is often at home with the six kids. Uh, three of them are teenagers now and they're, they're doing just fine, but it's still a pretty heavy load to carry. And every now and again, Kylie will call me on the phone and she'll say something like, Justin, I'm trying to be calm, but I need you to talk to Lily, please. She's really struggling today. And I think it's really important for us to remember that for our children and for us as adults as well, form follows feelings. Now, that's a fancy way of saying our kids will behave how they feel. So if they feel lousy, their behavior will be lousy. And if they feel good, their behavior will be good. Therefore, it's not helpful to focus on the behavior. It's helpful to focus on the feelings because if you can get the feelings under control, the behavior will take care of itself. That's a totally different approach. Our, our approach most of the time is I don't like what you're doing. And so I'm going to respond to the behavior that I'm seeing. And our children feel misunderstood. They feel invalidated. They feel dehumanized. But when we respond to their emotional world, they feel, they feel like we know them, that we understand them, that we care about them and they feel better. You want a happy child, understand your child. It's incredible. So, so I want to dive into some theory really quickly, Rini. And anyone who's ever done any psychology understands what Diana Borman brought to the world in her, her parenting, her two-by-two two parenting matrix um, some years ago. She talks about how essentially uh, the best way to parent, well, well there's, there's four ways that you can parent. It's on a two-by-two. Two. So you've got, um, you've got strictness on one or demandingness on one axis and you've got warmth on the other. If a parent is low on demands and low on love, they're what we call neglectful. That's obviously not helpful. If a parent is high on strictness but low on love, we call them authoritarian. And they're the ones who have kids who grow up uh, being very sneaky. If a parent's high on love but low on demandingness, well, we call them uh, laissez-faire parents or permissive parents. Um, it's interesting when we look at the research. Well, I, no, I won't go too much into the research here, but the research very briefly shows that this is not nearly as bad as everybody says that it is. Uh, but then the, the gold standard, according to Diana Bormer and, and two or three decades of parenting research, is when we're high on both demandingness and love. That is when we're authoritative. We love our children, but we're very clear on what the limits are. What's interesting about that is there's a handful of very clever studies that have been conducted since the 1980s and continuing even to today that highlight that the more demanding we are, even when love is present, the more likely it is that we're going to fall back into those less effective parenting strategies that we've talked about that lead to us and our children being unhappy and failing to learn. 
as I started to do my PhD, I learned about a, an alternative approach that just doesn't seem to get the publicity that it deserves. I think that this is, this leaves, if, 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 if Diana Bormann's, um, by the way, in, in my book, 21 Days to a Happy Family, I, I talk about some of Diana Bormann's comments about authoritative parenting and she I, might call- I read oh, those. The, Shocking. I've, I have never read those before, those comments. Yes. Yeah. And I don't want to bully Diana Bormand. I mean, she's made an extraordinary contribution. Diana, are you listening? <laughs> we have some <laughs> I, critiques. <laughs> but, but the science is out there to show that much of what she's said is um, perhaps not as accurate as it's been sold to us. And it takes a very careful reading of the science, going back to the papers and reading them intensively to understand that most parents don't do that. Most people don't do that. Even most scientists don't do that. Now, there's another way that we can approach this. And, and it was initially um, put into a parenting context by Mireille Jussemet, who is a French Canadian. Uh, and, and she had a paper published in 2008 in uh, Canadian psychology, where she talked about what she called a self-determination theory perspective on parenting. And I'm not going to go into the scientific talk because frankly, it's too complicated. But she steps out a four-step process that's consistent with the very best science. And, and I've modified it and changed it so that everyday parents can get it like this. And, and this is what it is. There's, there's three steps that I focus on. Step number one, explore, see the world through your child's eyes, understand what's going on for them. Step number two, explain, make sure that they understand what the limits and boundaries are. And step three, empower. That is do what Alfie Cohen said and work with your child to come up with appropriate ways to work through this particular issue so that we can set boundaries and limits together. There is a fourth step and the fourth step is minimize controlling techniques. It doesn't say eliminate, it says minimize because every now and again, you might have a child who no matter how much you try to work with them, they just won't be worked with. And therefore we need to put in some, some more strict controls. But that is, that's the end of the line. Unfortunately, most parents go straight there. They go straight to control. This other approach works so much better. Do you mind if I share an example of how it worked in my home just recently with Please my youngest? Please do, we would love that. Right. So, so I might actually share one with a, a toddler and one with a teenager to show how it works because we're talking about having happy children. And when it comes to discipline, discipline doesn't normally make children happy. But when we get discipline right, that is when we teach, guide and instruct, which is what this three E's of effective discipline does. It makes everybody happy. And we actually get a level of compliance that's extraordinary, much higher than the other techniques that we've discussed. So we're at the dinner table one night and my at the time so my youngest is about to turn five but this was a couple of years ago so she was two or three uh, and she had an absolute tantrum we've just begun dinner she sat at the table and just completely lost the plot you know here we are trying to talk about the things that we're grateful for today and the the toddler has just gone Blah! And, and what it turned out to, what turned out to be the problem was that we served up her dinner in the green bowl and not the pink bowl or something oh, yeah. like that. That's it was one fault. of those. Clearly. Because <laughs> that matters to a toddler. Yes. So um, I very gently tried to say to Emily, um, we don't have the green bowl. It's over in the sink. It needs to be washed. Or the, the pink bowl or whatever it is. That's why we've done and, and, and you know what it's like with a toddler. Like, you can't be rational with a toddler when their emotions are up here. 
she screamed at me like any self-respecting toddler does when they're having a real tantrum. Just, bah! and I realized straight away that this was not going to work. Now, we've got a rule in our house, and I think that it's a reasonable rule to have. We don't have a lot of rules, but one of the rules that we do have is that we don't scream at people at the table. I think that's okay. You know, it's that's a, a reasonable rule. rule. So I picked her up and took her to her bedroom. I want to be really clear that I didn't take her there to punish her or to put her in timeout. I took her there because we don't scream at the table and keeping her in the living area was going to make dinner horrible for everybody. So her bedroom was a comfortable, easy place to go. And as we walked to the bedroom, I held her and said, Emily, you're feeling so cranky because you've got the wrong bowl, aren't you? And again, to, I guess, confirm that she was cranky, she just kept on screaming. Ah! And she was trying to punch me and kick me because that's what toddlers do when they're mad. So I put her down in her bedroom and I said, I'd really like to give you a hug and help you to feel better because I can see how upset you are. At this point, I'm not interested in talking about fixing the problem. I just want her emotions to settle, which means that I've got to tap into her emotional world, let her know that I understand how she feels. It's a normal part of being human, even if it's over something that seems silly. But she kept on screaming at me and pushing me away. Now, I want to let my children have a level of autonomy. I'm not going to force them to hug me when they're mad. So I stepped over to the doorway and I said, Emily, I really want to give you a big hug and help you to feel better. But you seem so mad right now that you just want me to leave you alone. That's how it seems. Is that right? And she screamed at me again. So I said, when you're ready, you can come and get a big hug off dad and I'll give you a big cuddle and make you feel much better. And then we can talk about what the problem is. Okay. Would you like that? And she screamed at me again. I said, because you're screaming at me, I'm just going to step out of the room, but you come get a hug whenever you're ready. I stood outside for maybe five seconds, opened the door again and said, Emily, are you ready for a big hug now? Do you want a daddy cuddle so you feel better? And she screamed at me again. I couldn't believe it. She never normally keeps it going this long. I said, wow, you are so mad. Why don't I come back later? Or you come and get a hug when you're ready because my dinner's getting cold. I stepped out of the room. I was going to go and eat. And then I thought, no, I'll give her one more chance. So I counted to like 15. I opened the door again and said, Emily, I just wanted to come back one more time to see if you wanted to cuddle because I love you so much, even when you're cranky. And she got off the bed and came running to me with her arms out like, dad, 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 gave me a big cuddle. I held her for a couple of seconds. I said, you are just so upset about what happened at the table, aren't you? She nodded her head. I said, what do you think we should do? Because we've got a rule in our house that we don't scream at the table like that because it makes dinner yucky, doesn't it? And she nodded her head. I said, so what should we do? And she said, we should have dinner. I said, are you hungry? Uh-huh. And so we walked out to the table. I sat her at the table and she ate. And the whole thing took about 90 seconds. It probably takes longer to tell the story than it actually took in real life. At no point was I threatening her. There was no timeout. There was no punishment. There was no forcible isolation. It was a constant steady stream of me saying, I'm inviting you back into my world as soon as you're ready for it. But I also want to honor and respect the fact that you're making it clear that you don't want to be in my world right now. I want to ask you a question about this because it's bringing me back to your original story because your daughter that you're talking about is about this was about the same age as well, your yeah as your daughter when your wife went out at the time of the beginning. So parents want to know about practice, right? Because at no time in the story uh, does it seem like you your emotions rose, right? You're 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 calm, cool, collected. You have this practice down. And I believe you have this practice down and I believe it takes practice when someone's screaming in your face, right? For mm -hmm. even if you feel something internally rising within you to be able to handle it like this. 
uh, it was clear right from your first story that 24-year-old Justin was not able to do this. How did you get yourself to the point of being able to do this? Because it wasn't obviously just theory, just the, the eight years of schooling that you went through. How do you practice this? How did you get to the point where you were versed in it? Six years of, uh, sorry, six kids will help, uh, but lots of practice. Um, I think that there's a couple of handy things that, uh, mnemonics, you know, things to help you to remember that I've internalized and, and I'll, I'll share them with you right now. One of the things that I've learned, and I, it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier, is I actually ask myself the question when my children are losing the plot or when they're doing something that is disagreeable or challenging, I intentionally ask myself the question, do I want to help or do I want to hurt? Mm. So I've internalized that and I practice that. When my children are behaving in ways that are challenging, I specifically ask myself the question, do I want to help or do I want to hurt? In other words, do I want to punish or do I want to discipline? If I want my child to grow to be a better human, I need to discipline, not punish. I need to help, not hurt. So that's part of it. Um, I've, I've also got a couple of other things that I focus on. I want to explore, not explode. I want to understand, not reprimand. See, I've actually created a mindset over the years, and this is just a practice thing. This is thinking about parenting nonstop for 20 years. But I've created a mindset where I think to myself, um, I, I want to be calm and kind. I want to, I, I, I never want to get my children in trouble. Now, I know some people will hear that and say, that's shocking. You've got to get your children in trouble. But I don't believe that we ever need to get our children in trouble. We need to teach our children better ways to behave. And that's what discipline is. We need to teach them to be better humans, to treat others kindly, respectfully, uh, gently, compassionately. Uh, but by treating them in exactly the opposite way, we're not going to get there. They're not going to get there. We've got to be gentle, kind, compassionate, and understanding ourselves. So these mnemonics really work for me. I want to explore, not exploit. I want to help, not hurt. Uh, I want to be calm and kind. I want to understand, not reprimand. I want to get curious, not furious. And as I pre I've just made all of these little things up. And as I've practiced- I love it. I want to get curious, <laughs> not furious. It sounds like a, I think we're going to have to make a song. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so we, everyone we can can it There's something there, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, and, and it, it literally is a process in the same way that if you want to get better at anything, playing the guitar or the clarinet or the piano or riding a bicycle or playing chess, whatever skill you're interested in developing, becoming a better leader, um, cooking a better meal, the more you practice it intentionally, the better you get at it. Now, here's what's extraordinary about that story. As I carried Emily to her room, my intention was to help her, which made it really easy to stay calm. If I had done what many parents do, and I, again, this is not about shame and blame because we've all done it, including me, probably sometime in the last few months. But what we normally say to our children when they're doing this, whether they're two or 12 or whatever, is we say to them things like, would you just calm down? Stop it. And, and I'm, I'm curious, like when we say, would you just calm down? How many parents do you know that say, would you just calm down, please? You know, like parents don't <laughs> say it politely, they don't say it calm. 
their emotions go woohoo through the roof. Would you stop screaming? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and so we would you just calm down? No child has ever said, huh, good point. I am being a bit irrational right now, aren't I? I mean, even when we say it to our partner, if you've ever, you know, in your marriage or your, your, your relationship with somebody, if you say, oh, calm down, does the person ever say, good point, I'm being a bit over the top, aren't I? I mean, adults don't do it, so we can't expect our children to do it. Never uh, so, in the history of the world has anyone ever calmed down or relaxed by being told to calm down or relax. Yeah, yes. That's exactly right. <laughs> and it's the same with stop it. That's the other thing that parents will often say, just stop it. And kids are like, I'm not stopping it. I'm letting you know how I feel. So when we tap into their feelings, when we understand, when we give them a, a sense of, I'm here for you to support you. Uh, and when you're ready, come and get a hug and we'll talk about it. Once they're calm, the conversation's easy. So if we go back to the three E's of effective discipline, which I outline in 21 Days to a Happier Family, and then I explore them even more in one of my more recent books called uh, 10 Things Every Parent Needs to Know. Um, there's exploration first. I'm exploring, not exploding. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what's going on in your world. Help me to understand why you're so sad. And, and if you're dealing with a two or a three or a four-year-old, sometimes they can't tell you. Sometimes even your 15-year-old can't tell you. And so what you do instead is you just explore their emotions rather than the big problem. And so you, you, I love what Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence says. He says, if you can name the emotion, you can tame the emotion. And so I'll just say to my kids, you're feeling so upset. You're feeling so disappointed. You're feeling distraught. You're feeling frustrated. You're feeling angry. You're feeling lost. You're feeling repulsed. You're feeling whatever. And, and what happens is emotions just start to go as we name them. So that's all about the exploration. Then comes the explanation. You know, when we're at the table, Emily, it's really important that we don't scream. Dinner's horrible when we all scream, isn't it? Uh-huh. That's the explanation. And then the empowerment, even with a two or a three-year-old is, well, what do you think we should do now? And Emily says, let's go have dinner, even if it's on the wrong colored plate. And, and it's, it's done. Now, I had a similar, oh, sorry, Rena, you go. No, that's okay. So the empowerment piece really sounds like you were collaboratively working on a solution with them. Exactly. Empowerment isn't, I'm going to let you decide what to do. You can do whatever you want. Empowerment is, let's fix this together. And because I believe that my children actually have the answers inside them, they don't need me to give them the answers. Because I believe the answers are inside them, I simply say to them, and I've got a handful of lines that are really useful. Line number one. So what do you think we should do? Or where do you, where do you reckon we should go from here? What's the best way forward? Or simply, what do you think? One of my favorites is, and I usually deal with this one with older kids or if there's been any sibling conflict and rivalry, I'll say, well, if you're in my position, what would you do? You know, let's say there's a 16 year old that wants to go to that party. Or another one that I really like is, let's say you're a year or two older and your little sister wants to do what you're asking to do now. So she's a year or two older as well. What would you say? Would you let her go? And so what we're doing is we're creating this empowering situation where we're, we're encouraging our children to do a little bit of perspective taking and to use their brain. The great thing about this parenting strategy, honestly, is I don't have to do anything. I've just got to stay calm. <laughs> I don't really have to think about it. Okay, I so don't. I want to make sure because you said when you practice these things, at some point you said you can expect to fail many times because you're practicing, right, as a parent. Yeah. 
And yep. I want to make sure, what should the mindset be? So as you're saying this, I know that there are parents listening who are saying, but what if my kid says, I don't know, you know, to those, to those nice lines that you gave me and I'm trying them. And so they're yeah. not working. So how do we know what is working? What does that mean? When is this, what you're proposing with these E's, when do we know it's working? Such a, such a, I, I, I love this because, because sometimes the kids will not want to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so what I would usually say is if your child's not willing to engage in a sensible conversation about this, regardless of their age, there's one of two things going on. Number one, they don't have the skills. It's simply beyond them. And if that's the case, then our job is to say, well, since you don't have any ideas, I have a couple. Would you mind if we talked about my ideas and maybe that will prompt some ideas with you? The beauty of that, I, you probably remember Stephen Covey a few years ago, um, oh, 20, 30 years ago now, he wrote that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Sure. Um, he passed away recently, but uh, a couple of years ago. But, but he talks about how we, um, we want to seek first to understand and then to be understood. That's why we explore first and then explain. But when it comes to empowerment, that's again why we hand it over to them and say, well, what do you think we should do here? What do you think is the best way forward? And if they say, I don't know, or they say, Ugh, or something like that, because kids sometimes do that, we get to say to them, hmm, well, I've got some ideas. Would you be open to hearing? Because we've let them go first, even though they've got nothing, We've sought first to understand. They've just delivered zero. But what happens then is if we ask permission to share our ideas, they become very open to what we might have to say because we've given them a go and we've also sought consent. Now, I know some parents are probably thinking, I shouldn't have to seek consent from my child to tell them what I think. And you don't. But what happens when you do is they become far more open to listening to what you've got to say. So I think that there's great value in saying, okay, well, it sounds like you're a bit stuck. I've got some ideas. Would you be open to hearing them? Now, if they're not open to hearing your ideas or if they're refusing to engage in the conversation, it's not because of a lack of skill. It's because they're still emotional. And you don't discipline when they're emotional when they're, or when there's a crowd. So you say to them, well, you know what? This is a really important conversation and we do need a resolution to this because we're not going to walk away without limits and boundaries and a resolution. Because I'm not going to be that soft parent that lets you do whatever you want. As a parent, I've got a duty to raise you right. But now's clearly not the time. So why don't we get together before bed and we'll try again? Or why don't we go down to our favorite cafe or milk bar on Saturday morning and we'll have this conversation properly when we're both feeling a bit better. I'll buy you a milkshake and we'll just have a chat. And some people are like, well, you're rewarding the bad behavior. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're helping them to be emotionally safe and stable and feel like they're not in trouble so that you can have a sensible discussion. The kids don't think, oh, every time I act up, I'm going to get a free banana milkshake. What they think is every time I act up, my parents are going to take the time to understand what's going on in my world. And then we're going to work on a solution together. Happy children come from discipline. Unhappy children come from punishment. Hmm. Talk to us one more time about the fear that parents have of releasing fear-based tactics, saying if we don't have just really stringent consequences in the house, 
and we practice what you're saying, Dr. Coulson, won't we, won't there just be anarchy and chaos and won't they know they can get away with anything? You know, won't they just run wild, essentially? What have you seen in your research in both your personal life? There are dozens and dozens of studies that would refute that outcome. Uh, the research suggests that on average, and, and now, now I want to make a quick point here. There is no such thing as a guarantee when it comes to people, especially with little humans, you know, these children that we're rearing. Um, what psychological research does is it works on averages. So we get a whole lot of people, they do a study and we say, on average, this is the outcome. This is what happened for most people most of the time with this condition being met versus this condition, this is where most people went. There's, a, there, there's an average outcome. You and your children may not be average. I, I need to emphasize that. I, there's no such thing as a, a sure fix, a silver bullet when it comes to parenting. Uh, let me, let me go to some research. One of the coolest studies that I came across was by a researcher. She's a great researcher. Her name's Laura, P I don't know if it's Padilla or Padilla Walker. Laura Walker, she's at um, uh, Brigham Young University in Utah. And she did a study with several hundred adolescents from across the United States, uh, looking at what we would call this autonomy supportive parenting style essentially where parents are exploring, explaining and empowering their adolescents. The, the article was published in the Journal of Adolescence. It was peer reviewed uh, and it's one of many that provide this kind of an outcome. What her study showed was that when parents go through this deliberate, intentional process with their children, where they explore ideas with their children, when they, they explain what the limits should be and why, and then they empower their children to work with them on figuring out how they're going to do this as a family, those children were far more likely to do well at school, far more likely to behave in what we call pro-social ways. That is, they're kind to other people. Far more likely to, did I, I said, do well at school and um, be pro-social and also choose friends who um, made what I would call safe, healthy choices. Compared to the children in the sample who had parents that were quite authoritarian or even authoritative. That is, they were really, you know, I love you a lot, but it's my way or the highway, kiddo. You know, you're going to do what I say or there's going to be consequences, which is just a fancy word for punishments. Um, those children were much more likely to drink alcohol, much more likely to consume tobacco and other drugs. They were much more likely to engage in delinquent behavior and much more likely to engage in, um, Early intimacy, I think, is probably the polite way to say it. They were more likely to be getting it on wherever and wherever they could. Uh, now, now, they seem like extremes. I, I recognise that I'm sort of going poles apart here, and that's what the research highlighted. We can't say that if you do this, you'll get that, and if you do this, you'll get that. That's not what the data says. What the data says is you greatly increase your chances of having children who are willing to make safe, healthy, wise decisions when you work with them, not do things to them. My response, therefore, to the parents who are bringing up the objections that you've highlighted, and, and I hear it a lot, is give it a go. See how it feels. Your children, when they know that they're going to be punished, become deceitful. They become tricky. And you lose your relationship with them. When you practice the process that I'm describing here, your relationship with your children stays far stronger. It's, it's intact. They come to you. They trust you. They know that they're never going to get in trouble that you're going to work with them on difficult issues. Every now and again, they'll do something that you disagree with. And then you as a parent have to work out whether you're going to become controlling 
or you're going to step back and say, you know what, you're 17, 18, you're old enough to make your own decisions. I don't agree with them, but that's up to you. But what you'll usually find is that when you practice this, especially from a very young age, the children just learn that you love them, that you'll talk to them, that you'll work with them. It'll be okay. Rini, I had a, um, you've probably heard of the Facebook page, Goalcast. Yes. And I had a, I had a video go viral in December 2018 where I talk about an incident that I had with one of my daughters. Um, I saw that and your daughter, it was something about a party, I believe. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yes, but you tell us, please. Oh, well, very, very briefly. Um, she didn't get invited to a party that she didn't know was on. And two weeks after the event, she found out that the party had occurred and that she hadn't been invited. Uh, we discussed how upset she was because the reason she wasn't invited uh, was all the kids said, oh, we won't invite Chanel because things will be happening at the party that Dr. Justin Coulson won't approve of. Oh. Uh, she, Dad, you're making me miss out on all of this fun. Um, and, and so I talked to her about what was going on at the party and I said, we've established these rules together over the years. I'm not being dictatorial. I haven't told you that these are the rules and you must keep them. I've asked you how you feel about alcohol and what you would do in a certain situation if people were consuming it. Or I've asked you what you think about other drugs and how you'd respond or intimacy or whatever. And we've developed these rules together. It's been a collaboration. I said, you're, you're almost an adult now. You've only got a year to go, but I think they're good rules. I'd like to keep them. But if you're not happy with the rules, maybe we need to have another one of these conversations. And she responded after keeping me waiting with bated breath for far too long. I don't like the rules, dad. And it broke my heart and my heart sank. And I thought, what am I going to do now? She doesn't like the rules. I don't want her going out and doing all of these things. What am I supposed to do? And about 10 seconds later, she said, but I think we should keep them. They're good rules. She recognized the wisdom that was in them. Uh, now, now that video has been seen by like 50 million people now. It's extraordinary how many people have been influenced by it and have responded well to it. But I think that, um, one of the most common questions that I've had from that video, Rini, is, well, what would you have done if she said, I don't like the rules, they need to change? Mm -hmm. And the response is really simple. I would have said, okay, well, now's not the time, but let's have a, a time where we can sit down somewhere and maybe have a, a, a salad or a bowl of wedges or something and let's have a chat about the rules that you don't like and let's explore how you're feeling. And then I'll do a little bit of explaining. I'll tell you about what the science, you know, what, what the science tells us about why these rules are important. And then we'll discuss where we should go from here because as a 17 year old, one year off being, you know, an adult, uh, I'm, I'm at a point now where I have less and less say in your life, but I still care about you and I want you to be healthy and safe and I want you to make decisions that are wise. And so that's what we would have done. And I don't know what the outcome would have been to that because we didn't obviously have to have that conversation. Um, but, but this is how this process works. And it raises kids who, well, they don't feel like they're being coerced. They feel like they're part of a conversation and they're making decisions for themselves. They don't feel like they're being coerced and they don't have the thoughts I had. And I have lovely, you know, beautiful, compassionate parents, but I had many a thought growing up. I can't wait to get out of this prison, essentially. I can't yeah. wait to be free, right? Because from zero to 18, I felt controlled in many, many ways, you know. And again, love you, mom. Sorry, but I did. <laughs> You're great, mom. You're really, <laughs> we have a basic psychological need for autonomy. Mm -hmm. from, and we know this because you look at your babies, your infants, your toddlers, 
and they they hate it when we try to, you know, they can't do up their shoe, but boy, oh boy, do they want to put that shoe on themselves. I um, do myself. I will never forget that line from my two-year-olds at the time. You know, I do myself. Yes. Yeah. They want to master their skills. They want to be autonomous. Everyone wants to have some influence on their own life, right? They want their actions and behavior to influence their own life. I could literally sit here for the next 10 hours and ask you questions. I am fascinated by your work. I think that it is, it, it's so beautifully put out there in a way where you share both yourself and your personal life and your learnings and you make it extremely practical. You are amazing. If we had a live studio audience, you would get a standing O, but we don't. So you have me, so I'm clapping. We Thanks. loved having you here with us. You're amazing. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. And thank you for all the work you do in the world for children and for grownups. Thank you. Oh, you're far too kind, but it's been so much fun. I wish we had 10 hours as well, but let's do it again sometime. Hi, it's Rini again. I just want to remind you, if you loved that interview with Dr. Coulson, and I know you did, wasn't it great? You will find lots more experts just like him at happychildsummit.com. And if you use the code DEARANXIETY20, we'll give you, our supportive listeners, 20% off the Summit package. Thanks for listening. And as Ed would say, it works if you work it. We'll talk to you next week.